0: Hi Allison. Hi Sarah.
1: So here we are, Spotlight on France, making another episode from the confines of our homes at the opposite ends of Paris. I'm sitting on my bed, in my bedroom. Oh, it sounds
0: (laughs) so romantic. I'm in the living room.
1: Ah, yes, indeed, romantic. Um, But we are still under quarantine, under lockdown here in France. Um, It's been extended for another month until at least May 11th.
0: Yeah, at least. It's really difficult to know even what day it is, and distinguish between the week and the weekends. And and make the days a bit different. Um, You know, we're just one of many people now working from home and sadly many more of them now are on temporary unemployment. About one third of people working in the private sector are now unemployed. But, you know, we've all got a lot more time on our hands. And it would seem that loads of people are turning to baking.
1: Which is interesting in the land of baguettes where people are just used to going to the bakery to get their their baked goods and their
0: bread. Yeah. And this has led to a shortage of flour. Can you believe it? In the supermarkets, the shelves in mine are empty. At least they are in the afternoon, which is when I've been tending to go.
1: Yeah. Actually, there are discussions in my building with my neighbours where everybody's trading tips where the latest shipments have arrived in what store in the neighborhood, it sort of feels like the black market a little bit. Yeah, it
0: does. Yesterday, I asked the supermarket manager what on earth was going on. It turns out that they are still being delivered with flour every morning, but no sooner does it hit the shelves than it disappears. Ah. So he said I had to get there before 11 in the morning. So I went this morning at 10am and I got a bag of flour. We are limited, by the way, to, to two bags. There's a sign up there saying that very specifically.
1: It, it really is kind of the limited black market market. what
0: What's going on? Well, the industry says that France imports a fair amount of flour. It comes from Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands, and that's no longer happening.
1: Oh, right, because I guess with all the borders closed. And so I guess people are just baking a lot at
0: home. Yeah, they would seem to be avoiding bakeries more and more. That's what my local baker said. She's selling less. Uh, She's now closing at 2 p.m. every afternoon rather than 7. Mm. People would seem to be a bit fearful about buying bread over the counter. Is, Is that justified? Well, it's anyone's guess. The dough is cooked, isn't it? So that shouldn't be an issue. And then when the baker handles the bread, well... Either they should be wearing gloves or using tongs. So unless they've actually got the virus and then decided to cough on your baguette, there shouldn't be much of a risk.
1: Yeah, and you don't really want a baker to be coughing on your bread in any circumstance. But but clearly people are still worried. So I guess they're baking from home. And then the supply chains obviously can't keep up to keep supermarkets stocked, at
0: least. No. And the French miller syndicate says, however, that it does have enough of its own to satisfy the current demand. Uh, especially since bakers are actually asking for less flour. Mm. The problem is that in the early days of the lockdown, the distribution model via haulage companies was slowed down. Um, That was because when all the restaurants started closing, it meant that truckers had nowhere to stop have a rest and um, use the loo. Oh, you mean like restaurants along the highways. Yeah, exactly. And so the state and the uh, cereal, the flour sector, have been looking at this and sorting the problem out. And Little by little, there are now better distribution channels. Meanwhile, the flour mills here in France, whose silos are in fact full of flour, this white gold, if you like, they say that they would love to be able to supply the supermarkets directly, but many of them don't have the equipment to fill small one or two kilo bags. They're in fact just equipped for the big 25 or 50 kilo ones. Oh,
1: like for the bakeries? Yeah. These are just things you don't ever think about until you have to, like in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. It might seem a bit trite to be talking about flower shortage in the midst of such a health crisis. But it's the interesting thing about all this, because most people, most of us, thankfully, aren't sick um, and we're just having to cope with this lockdown, working from home, managing children or uh, facing great solitude.
0: Yeah. And neither lockdown nor the virus is affecting people equally. Uh, So much depends on your situation. For example, a recent poll showed that 60% of the French were living out confinement in houses with gardens, lucky them, (laughs) while at the other end of the spectrum, 12% are in flats with no balcony terrace or anything.
1: Yeah, well, and that's my case. And I think that's the case for you too. And then a lot of people about 7% of the population are living in the poor city suburbs, the banlieue. Not only are they in small apartments, often overcrowded, this is social housing, um, people are also on the front lines of keeping France running the way it is, at least
0: economically. Yeah, They're far more likely to be working in high risk areas, Uh, people like health workers, hospital auxiliaries, or working in nursing homes, or in services like uh, transport, or uh, rubbish collection, or supermarket cashiers.
1: Yeah, far less likely to be working on computers from the comfort and safety of their homes, or their bedrooms, as is the case for us right now.
0: Yeah, and like many people around the world who are living in poverty, they're also more vulnerable health-wise, you know, they just have poorer health. And in these poorer banlieues, especially north of Paris, they have far fewer doctors per capita than we do here in the capital.
1: Yeah, and and the deaths appear to have been higher there than elsewhere. Um, at least in the last week of March, there was a death rate that shot up sixty three percent in Saint Denis, which is the banlieue right north of Paris. Health officials think it did have something to do with the virus, and that of course is linked to what we were talking about earlier: people's jobs, their baseline poor health, the lack of. Health Healthcare.
0: Yeah, the lack of healthcare or just, you know, inadequate healthcare. And so local organizations have kicked into gear. They've been rolling out their own plans of action to help the most vulnerable where healthcare is missing. One of them is called Bonlieu Santé. It's a non-profit network of around 5,000 volunteer doctors, nurses and social workers. And they're doing outreach work outside of Marseille, Lyon, Bordeaux, uh, Lille, Toulouse, as well as in the Paris region. They reach out to the elderly and to single parent families in particular, and especially people who have difficulty speaking, reading, and writing French, and who therefore tend not to use the standard healthcare system.
1: That kind of outreach actually
0: seems particularly irrelevant these days. Exactly, with the the crisis. Um, And as soon as it broke out, the organization saw how bad it was getting in Italy, and so they developed their own action plan. They began by distributing thousands of food parcels so that people wouldn't have to go outside. Mm. They've also launched an app with videos that show basic hygiene measures like, you know, washing your hands regularly, social distancing, etc. And all of that. That's been done in 20 languages, and they've sent out mobile health teams to try and identify the most fragile people, people who are showing symptoms, and then get them to see a doctor. I spoke to the group's founder, a nurse called Abdelali El Badawi, on the telephone this week after a long day in the field.
2: C'est une population qui n'ira pas d'elle-même
0: et puis on on se People a are not seeking On a
2: retrouvé des patients euh, qui n'avaient pas mangé depuis quelques jours
0: patients Now, often, Sarah, there is a major language barrier in all of this, and it turns out that that's the reason why El Badawi set this whole thing up in the first place, back in
2: 2018. I got
0: badly burned in an accident when I was six, he said, and around 70% of my body was burned. That opened my eyes to real social inequality because my parents are Berber from Morocco, and I could see how anguished they were over a situation that they just couldn't understand. He says
2: je me suis toujours dit la compréhension devait être une partie intégrante du soin.
0: I always said to myself that being able to understand was an essential part of any healthcare provision, so
1: obviously, these teams speak all different languages then
0: yeah, yeah, languages like colloquial Arabic sonenke Bambara, languages like that. So in the case of this coronavirus
1: pandemic, I mean, in general maybe, they're they're doing more than just covering up holes in,
0: in an imperfect health system. Well El Badawi we certainly thinks so. Uh, he says there's a need for more health care in these areas, but he also defends the idea of it being a grassroots health movement that they really need, because you can't necessarily have a one-size-fits-all system when you have such a culturally diverse population. We've had to change the public healthcare model, he says, and make a model that's more participative, to get as close as possible to people, because they're struggling to claim their rights.
2: Uh, qui a du mal à, à faire la demande uh, de ses droits uh, médicaux.
0: So there's been plenty
1: of criticism of the government's action or lack of action in underprivileged banlieues. I mean, this generally even before the coronavirus crisis. Um, and some say this crisis has really put the spotlight on, on years of neglect.
0: Yeah, El Badawi wouldn't disagree, but for now, he wants to focus on finding solutions.
2: Nous considérons que nous sommes tout à fait aussi. Euh,
0: we believe we're même, the best place, uh, place to resolve uh, these problems, uh, he says, uh, because uh, we live in the communities. Uh, I don't think uh, we should uh, be looking uh, to blame uh, anyone. Uh, We've got to come together, uh, knuckle uh, down, uh, and work uh, together. Uh, I prefer to uh, get uh, across uh, a message of solidarity and national unity in our banlieues.
2: Le message est un message plutôt de, de solidarité et d'union nationale dans nos territoires.
0: He's nonetheless appealing for more funding for the Bonlieue Santé programme so that it can be rolled out much further. And by the way, I discovered through this outreach program where the word bonlieu comes from, Sarah. Do you know? Actually, no. I have no idea. Where does it come from? From lieu banni, which means banished lands. Wow. That's intense. It is. And it's interesting, isn't it? Maybe, let's hope, the coronavirus might lead to a bit more reflection on how to reconnect the, the bonlieu to the cities and starting with more inclusive health care. <laughs>
1: This week marks a year since the fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral in the center of Paris. Um, a lot has changed in the world since then, since we saw the roof in flames, the spire melting into this
0: fiery inferno. Yeah, and the focus has shifted because in the days and weeks after the fire, there was this huge outpouring of donations to, to rebuild the cathedral, and also a lot of debate about how to rebuild it, um, the timeline and what it would look like
1: Yeah, and work on the site has actually been on hold since the lockdown here in France uh, mid-March. But Macron, the president, says he wants reconstruction to stick to the five-year timeline that he set last year, and he wants work to start up as
0: soon as possible. But today, it is hard to get back to that sense of urgency we had at the time.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Agnès Poirier is a French journalist. She goes back and forth between France and the UK. She's been discovering this in particular because she wrote a book about Notre Dame. It's part reportage about the fire and the aftermath. It's a part history of the cathedral. Um, She titled it Notre Dame, the soul of France. And the English edition came out this month in the midst of the lockdowns. The French publisher actually decided to put off publication for a year. Uh, She says she had a lot of events lined up book signings, literary festivals through the month of October actually, and those have all been canceled. She told me she was disappointed, but really, it's all relative.
3: There are more pressing issues than the release of a book. Of course, it's, you know, it was six months of my time. Frankly, you know, I've had wonderful reviews. So in a way, I feel sort of vindicated. It it would be so wonderful to have readers, of course. It's very
1: difficult to find the book. But that's almost the cherry on the cake. We are talking pretty much on the one year anniversary of this fire that brought Notre Dame really to everyone's attention worldwide. Like we're in a very different place now. And and how does that feel when you're looking back on all the work you did and also on the Notre Dame fire itself, like where we are today and how relevant it feels? You know, Notre Dame is not in a different place. We are because of the crisis.
3: And like the rest of us, she's under lockdown. Just a day after the lockdown was uh, decided in France, the uh, Jean-Louis Georgenin, who is the general who is overseeing the whole reconstruction operation, decided he had a very um, lovely uh, expression. He said, "We're going to have to put Notre Dame to sleep because they just couldn't continue the work." It's very striking because they were just days from starting the most difficult and perilous operation on Notre-Dame, that is to say the removal of the molten 500 tons of scaffoldings that melted during the fire.
1: Yeah, because there was a real question of, of whether or not the building would actually you know stand up on its own without that.
3: Completely, and we'll actually be able to collectively uh, breathe a, a sigh of relief when uh, the scaffolding is cut down removed.
1: This is when Notre Dame will be really considered safe. Well, so what's what I find interesting in all of this is, you know, a year ago, we're watching this terrible fire. And then in the days and weeks after there was, you know, debates over reconstruction and how to rebuild and the speed at which and the money it was going to take. And today, as you just said, you know, it's being put to sleep. And on some level, I mean, maybe this slows down all of that, and maybe is a good thing in terms of reflecting on what's going to happen to this cathedral and thinking about rebuilding. I imagine this, this deadline of five years to get it rebuilt, as it was announced by the president, maybe is, is now a moot point. Well, yes, like the rest of our lives, really. I mean, it works
3: on two levels. On one hand, yes, it's a time for reflection, and I think it's a good thing. It's always a good thing for everyone. And certainly in the case of what are we going to do with the spire, for instance, uh, which is the most controversial issue. But on the other hand, life should restart as soon as possible on the sites, simply because we need
1: the cathedral to be really stabilized. So talk about writing this book, you know, you you sort of like everybody else in, in France, sort of, you know, shockingly seeing this fire. I imagine that was what you, know, you weren't planning on writing a history of Notre Dame beforehand. And how did it come about? I mean, because you both interviewed and talked to people who are on the site and the rescue operations and the reconstruction operations, but it's also a history of the place. So what happened is that I had just come back from London
3: to uh, be in Paris for the address of President Macron, if you remember, who was supposed to give a big speech about how to tackle the uh, Yellow Vest protest. And uh, right in front of my eyes, Notre Dame uh, started burning. And it was interesting because throughout the the, the evening and and for uh, two days, uh, night and day, It was always the same question put to me by people very far away, saying, we are so terribly upset. Tell us why, because some of us have never actually visited the place, or only did it once years ago uh, when we visited Paris, and yet uh, we are in tears. And those questions I was also asking myself. You know, I'm French and I'm Parisian. What we felt was difficult for me to put words. Of course, you talk about one of the great landmarks of france of french culture a feat of architecture which has been with us for nine centuries but it was more than that
1: yeah there was this sort of collective feeling of of gosh something that we've always depended on being here is no longer there something in a world that maybe doesn't feel quite as permanent well exactly and also perhaps we also felt
3: uh, some guilt because it had been with us for nine centuries and somehow, you know, for all, our, we're so technologically savvy, and yet we couldn't stop
1: the wood to uh, catch fire. And so you started digging into, you know, what is it about this building that that did sort of strike such a chord, both internationally, but also for yourself. And you started looking into the history of, of the place. And what did, you know, what are some of the things that, that struck you, some of the stories about this cathedral? I actually discovered
3: so many Stories uh, which I had either forgotten or, or I never knew. For instance, if you go back to its construction, unlike many other Gothic cathedrals of the time, Notre Dame was financed by the people, by farmers, by peasants. Maurice de Sully was the Bishop of Paris, uh, who was visionary and had this idea of Notre Dame. Uh, but he was also the son of farmers. You know, very often, uh, members of the high clergy came from the aristocracy. That was not his case. And also, all the bourgeoisie of Paris actually put a lot of money... Of course, the aristocracy, and to some degree, but, you know, very modestly, the king put some money in it. But so it was a completely collective action. And it surprised me because if you compare to other cathedrals of the time, it wasn't like
1: this at all. How do we get from this very old monument to you know this still emotionally relevant place in the 21st century you know what is it about the history that you found that does that i mean i could talk about the french revolution
3: i discovered so many things for instance we all know about bastille day the 14th of july 1789 we know about the storming of the bastille prison but do we know or did we remember that the day after the
1: revolutionaries flocked to Notre Dame for a mass of celebration. Even though the revolution eventually eventually sort of moved towards a really secular way and sort of rejected religion in the beginning, I guess that was a way of celebrating in the beginning. Yeah, it was just
3: the beginning because after the 4th of August, uh, 1789, the night of the abolition of privileges, a few hours later, the hundreds of French deputies uh, flock again for a mass celebration at Notre Dame, and this is also where the first assembly of the National Assembly gathered in the Episcopal Palace of Notre Dame, and this is where they decided to nationalize the assets of the church in a, a sort of impudent way. This is also where they decided to nationalize the religion. And Notre Dame was transformed into a polling station. Imagine that. Notre Dame became a laboratory of ideas, of revolutionary experimentations. And of course, as the terror took ground, Catholicism was banned. But Notre Dame was not closed. It was never closed
1: in the course of its 850-year history until the fire. It strikes me that if that fire hadn't happened... Maybe this year, actually, it might have been the first time that it closed, given that we're not supposed to be gathering at all in France. You know, if it weren't the fire, maybe it would have been the coronavirus that would have shut it in the 21st century.
3: Yeah. And yet, on uh, Good Friday, there was a mass. So um, yes, it took a fire and it would have taken the virus
1: to uh, shut its doors. So for you, then, you know, through this book, you're fine. And through the research, it you really found that it's it's it is the history it, or it is just it's its existence throughout french history that makes it so emotionally relevant today or just this long lastingness like yeah what is it about it that as you say is it becomes sort of the soul of france as you as you've titled your book
3: well it's both i would say because for instance this is where france have and the french have reconciled uh, with each other, you know we could talk about Henry the Fourth during the Wars of Religion. This is where he goes to win over the hearts of of Paris because without paris he couldn't be the king of France. Uh, this is where, when Victor Hugo decided to set the decor of the hunchback of Notre Dame, and thanks to that novel, um he also raised awareness to the condition of the medieval heritage, historic monuments of of France, and a law was passed uh, for the preservation, restoration of uh, French architectural patrimony. Um, So, Notre Dame was always at the centre of big things. I can talk about more recently Charles de Gaulle, who on the 26th of August 19, Forty-four. The day after he entered Paris, liberated Paris, walked down from the Champs Elysees, ended at Notre Dame, where there were snipers. We still don't know whether they were German snipers or collaborators or even communists who tried to assassinate him. And he walked all. Everybody was squatting and trying to hide behind chairs and pillars, and he just walked straight to the altar. So you know, this is a special place because this is where France lick its wounds after a tragic period of history or, or to celebrate some glorious events.
1: All of this now takes on a different perspective given where we are today. H- how do you think Notre Dame will be seen as we come out of all of this? You could argue that actually there's an
3: urgency, even more so, because of the virus, uh, to see Notre Dame being rebuilt, especially for believers. But even for non-believers, that would be a sign of hope that uh, we all you know, recover, and she does too. It might have an effect on how we decide collectively to rebuild the spire, because all those fantastical and extravagant talks about giving her a touch of 21st century genius, perhaps we'll calm down because all we want is to have her back.
0: That's it for the show this week. As always, if you're looking for things to listen to, well, we've got 36 other episodes up online. You can listen on rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from
1: you. Spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Let us know how you are spending your confinement or ask us questions you might wanna know about France. We'll hopefully be back in two weeks time with a new episode. Subscribe to Spotlight on France to get it whenever it's ready. Bye for now. Bye-bye.